Welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 6, Philosopher's Stone. How long has this talk about philosophers' stones been going on? How long has the human race, at least the thinkers of them, been concerned with it? And why did it seem to them to be worth chasing? Enlightenment, turning matter into spirit, inertia into free will, darkness into light. How many thousands of years have we been doing it? And has it been worth doing? Well, let's approach the thing from the point of view of S-T-N. Now, S means spirit and T means fixation or crucifixion. N means two wonderful things, negation and intelligence. Intelligence is that essence whereby you now have to join yourself to a purpose which you wish to fulfill. The fundamental idea in stone, ST1, is that all matter is really spirit, self-fixated. And when this stone is discovered, it is stated it will confer immortality on the owner. What does it mean? Immortality. And what is mortality? Death. What is death? (laughs) So every time you go out of the room, you die death. Is that true? It has been said that when you walk away from your friends, you die to them because you immediately tend to think about something more interesting. Kind of death. Everything you leave is kind of death. But the word death really means disintegration. And the question is, are we already dead, that is, disintegrated, in some degree? And if so, what is the disintegrating factor? Inertia, I would say that inertia is not a disintegrating factor, because it continues in the same way. Chasing too many. Chasing too many. That's a good... Egotism. Well, egotism is what? Focus upon a finite self-reference. Too many desires would mean how many? More than you need for conversion. Could be. No purity of heart is said to be to will one thing. One thing only. And that is not too many desires, is it? One 
that you can merge upon, and that everything else is subordinated towards that one. And suddenly you took all the energy that you have, and just thought about one thing, and then released that energy towards that one thing. How much probability would you have of getting it? Compared with you, if you had a thousand other things to distract you. The more things you are interested in that you have not already coordinated, the more disintegrated. Schizophrenia is an example of interest in the mind which are not coordinate. So they tend to operate independently. Like you might study a given subject, a science, say chemistry, or you might study psychology, or you might study religious philosophy. But if you don't link them together, they set up inside you a system of concepts which operate independently. So a person could actually be very religious on a Sunday and not on a Monday according to the stimuli, hitting the organism. Now, Leonardo da Vinci. Why not? If he was interested in so many things, and those things were not coordinated, then he would be a disengaged personality. Listen to think about Leonardo, he was supposed to be coordinating his various knowledges. Yeah? So he wouldn't come under the heading of disintegrating, because he was always trying to find, like many Renaissance thinkers, the common factor in all knowledges. Yeah? And incidentally, Leonardo is a very dangerous fellow to introduce into a conversation about brilliance of invention. Considering although he did some mechanical drawings, he also did some very unpractical ones like drawing aeroplanes that wouldn't fly. It's very interesting to find a man of his day interested in many things, as most Renaissance young bucks were, but not having sufficient knowledge technologically to do what they wanted to do. Now if we take a convergent man like Michelangelo and the human figure, we find that he coordinated his work brilliantly and in relation to that was not disintegrated. But in relation to some elements in his summits, he showed a certain kind of awareness of a deficiency. And when we talk about famous people in history who have been convergent in some particular area, so that they were, in that area, not schizophrenic. Outside that area, very often, they were. And being very brilliant in one given direction, often they neglected another direction. And they thought the sacrifice was worth it. They liked uh, Nietzsche as an example, who broke down completely because of his convergence on the idea of a superman, and the idea of the eternal recurrence. And they are very, very difficult concepts to link together. But we can say this, categorically, that if we can link together with a common base explanation all our knowledges, then we are not schizophrenic. But to the degree 
that we do not coordinate them, we are, whether we like the term or not. And that means 100% of the human race are in some degree schizophrenic. There's something they know and something they don't know. And there's something they think they know which they don't know. So we have this beautiful fact. We could say the only thing common about the human race is they're all in the same boat. They are creatures, they are finite, some of them are struggling for knowledge, and some are not. Many are trying to enjoy themselves regardless of knowledge. Many are trying to solve problems which have been badly set, and they're insoluble because they're not correctly stated problems. Now let's go back to our statement about the philosopher's stone. The philosopher, the word is introduced to begin with without a definition, and then later he said to mean love of wisdom, that the self part is the wisdom. Now if you look at the SOPH, self in philosophy, and Sophia, wisdom, and reverse it, it gives you PHOS, both, which is light. So that the word soap actually means the word light turns round and back to its source. In other words, it means reflective awareness. Now we all know something, we all know a lot of things, but do we know them reflexively? That is to say, do we know that we know them, or do we just know them? For instance, suppose we say cat, dog, and so on. And we see this, we think we know what a cat is. But do we? How many of us have studied cats so thoroughly that we know exactly what constitutes pure catness? Is a domestic cat a cat? Is a Scottish wildcat a cat in the same sense? Is a puma, a tiger, a lion, a cheetah a cat in the same sense as the tabby next door? Well, there are certain things that are quite different and moved away from the essence of catness. Now, we have to be careful that when we think we know something, because we have a word, we really have to be very careful that we do know the meaning of the word, to what it refers, and also to be able to know it, not only intellectually as a word, but to feel it, and that feeling internal to ourselves, to become a volition so that we can actually will what we feel that we know. That's three factors. To will, what we feel, what we know. To be reflexive is to say to yourself, I don't only know it, I know that I know it. I don't only will it, I will that I will it. That's reflection. That is the highest function of any conscious being, to be reflexive. Now let's look the stone again. The phonetics of that word tell you spirit that is free initiative has crucified itself and in the process negated itself. Now when you set up a negation of yourself you set up a self-resistance. Now imagine what would happen if you had no resistance. Supposing we had a pure field of awareness and nothing whatever in that field of awareness to resist the awareness. 
What would that field of awareness be like? A field of awareness with nothing in it to resist it. What would it be like? Like not knowing. Well, it would be what you call objectless. It would not be focused. It would be infinitely diffused. And consequently useless. Now, when we say, all right, let's take this S for sentience, and sentience itself meaning spirit, the awareness that we have is that whereby we are able to seize, to capture an object in the field of awareness. And when we say the word percept, that means rational capture. When we say concept, it means take a group of percepts and grasp them. That's the set part in concept get hold of them. And the sentience gets hold of itself and by its action upon itself molds itself into a form which you call a conceptual essence. All our control ideas are concepts which have been molded by the will to control. The will to attain formal control of a situation. The will to control the formal situation is the origin of concepts. The origin of percepts too. And the percept is a single one and concept is a group. Now, if we haven't got these concepts, there is merely a field of awareness. There's no body there. Nobody there. What is the field of awareness like with nobody there? Well, it's like nobody there. The field of awareness very difficult for us to imagine because we do have a body central to our field of awareness. So naturally we tend to start from our body and verify it. I am here. And this body is a condensation of an intent to exist. You know, sometimes people get a, a negative attitude towards life. And when they do, they stop putting energy into what they're doing. And they become faint. Their character diminishes in energy and they become vain. Vain means vanishing. They cease to energize their concepts, their ideas. And when you cease to energize an idea, what happens to the idea? They sort of languish, don't they? Lie around doing nothing. That's the state called pralaya. Lying down, doing nothing. Now, is there any use in an idea lying down, doing nothing? No. And because we are human beings, we like to be effective in some degree, in some area of attainment, don't we? If we thought we were totally ineffective, we would tend to get fed up and think it wasn't worth existing. A lot of people commit suicide annually because life for them is not worth it. And when it isn't worth it, they withdraw the energy from the life. Life there meaning the embodied active process. They withdraw it. And then the body, first of all, your breathing diminishes, your blood circulation diminishes, energization of the cells diminishes, and literally you can fade away. How many of you have seen a case of a person losing heart Perhaps it was shock, or the loss somebody they are very fond of. 
and then he was hard, and yet weak, and paid away. I know many cases of a man and wife who lived together for years, and then one has died, and the other has died very quickly afterwards, because they cannot find that recipient and resistant cooperative other being to which they use. Now, the Philosopher's Stone, we'll put it very simply, and you can work it out later at your leisure. The Philosopher's Stone is you. It's not a mysterious thing elsewhere. The Philosopher's Stone is you. It is you. And you know that Y-O-U signifies an affirmed potential drive. You are a zone of awareness, a zone of sentient power, and you can either do something or nothing according to your intent. Sometimes you do something specific, sometimes you just sit around. Some people sit around and mope, some people sit around and sit around. Some people think when they're sitting around. And no two people are identical at any given moment in what they're doing or thinking or feeling. Now, the Philosopher's Stone confers immortality in this way. To be a human being, as opposed to an animal, is to be able to formulate, that is to structure the content of consciousness with ideas. Ideas is Greek for form, and the Latin forma is form, and the Anglo-Saxon and the English shape is the same word. These are synonyms. So to have an idea, a form, a shape, is already to have structured consciousness. Now, if we have no structure in consciousness, we cannot relate intelligently to each other or to the universe at large. Now, when we first become aware of our awareness as babies in the womb, our awareness is very, very vague. We don't have the loud battering of external sounds because it's filtered through body tissue and the amniotic fluid and so on. Although the baby in the womb actually hears, but it doesn't know clearly what it's hearing. A mumbled debate between mother and father is received by the child, but it doesn't do a verbal analysis of it. But it does pick up the emotional charge on it. So a baby in the womb can be disturbed by an emotional disagreement between people in that room. Now, the vagueness of the baby is because the baby has not yet acquired a vocabulary, a group of words, which signify precisely its own condition of awareness. Let's say awareness uh, is a general term for unguardedness, the where, wariness, the war in wary, means that we are actually, insofar as we exist, vulnerable. I know a lady who decided she didn't want the baby she had, so she threw herself downstairs. But uh, it didn't work, because she didn't throw herself hard enough or accurately enough, because she hadn't got the convergence to be quite sure that was what she wanted to do. Did you know that it has been estimated that 80% of children are not 100% affirmed by their parents. That was a problem. It could be economic, it could be emotional, it could be social, 
to be anything, even in a question of illegitimacy. It can make a person not holy, convergent. Now, a field of awareness means a field of vulnerability. If you exist, that is, you're an encapsulated energy, something can hit you from outside. An energy can hit you. For instance, experimentally, it has been shown that with radio waves you can kill. Just by beaming radio waves into the brain of a living being. They haven't, to my knowledge, confessed that they've done it to humans, but they have confessed and written papers about doing it to monkeys. They beam radio waves into the brain, and the eyes go red, and the nose goes red, and the monkey begins to look neurotic, and then he dies. That's because the brain waves are interfered with by the radio wave input. And we may not think it, but we influence each other all the time through emotive fields. Let's define a field. A field is a zone of operative energy. A field tells you that energy is present. Now let's think about energy very carefully. We pointed out that in any given existing system, dualism is impossible. Now, thinking is one thing and physical action is another thing. But if they were totally different at base, they could not interact. Things that are absolutely different cannot interact. So we have the same thing. A field of energy which could appear in a person as an emotion and the physicality of that being, namely the flesh and especially the bones, they are mutually influenceable. You know that because you get somebody with a bone, spare bone, say like Peter might have a bone, have you got a bone there, Peter? And uh, your dear wife, for my sake, have you got a hard pencil to hit him on the knuckle, you? Um, this is an experiment, Peter, right? I want you to hit him hard. Don't, don't have any mercy. On the knuckle. Not to the point of breaking it, but just hard enough to make him think it is. And did, you blink then, Peter. Did you feel it? Now, was that a change in your emotive state? induced by an action on your knuckle. It focused you. Did you find you became a bit sharper at that point? Yes. Yeah, right. And normally you're not that sharp, are you? On the knuckle. <laughs> Go on. Make sure, yes, we'll just check, Peter. Because it could have been a suggestion on my part now. Remove all my suggestions. I'm not hypnotizing you. And this is an experiment. You're going to be very honest and you're going to tell me if there's any change in your feeling state when this experiment enters into operation. Right? Thank you. You feel anything? Prepared. Good. Now, there's a degree of prepared. There is a degree of reflection. Yes? And which would you rather be? You'd rather be prepared. Now, prepared means rationally paired. You've got an image in your mind of a blow about to arrive, and then one arrives, and you pair them. 
But you did this before it actually happened, that's preparation. Eh? And you prepared it. You were able to steal yourself. I saw your eyes go steal. Incidentally, you will not revenge yourself on your dear wife <laughs> when you go home. Mm-hmm. The thing is, what? Just the phone when you're speaking. She's going to do a different object. I'll just touch the last one minute to get past. She might have poked you in the ear. <laughs> 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 I'll just touch you in the ear. Yes, naturally. Because you can tell if somebody is prepared. Mm-hmm. So you look for the unprepared bit. Now, a state of field awareness is where a zone of sentient power has not been hurt hard enough for it to prepare itself for the shock. Right? Now, if you're not prepared, who's going to get a lot of people to rush at you now, which they would gladly do, I'm sure, and start beating you up, putting pencils in your ears and banging you on the knuckles, kicking you on the chin. All at once, what would tend, not necessarily, but tend to happen to your field of awareness? Are you that old that you can think of many years ago? You don't look it. Years ago. A few years ago. And what happened then? Somebody? Yeah. Just one buddy. They all agreed, didn't they? Yeah. And what was your then state? You thought you could lose by hitting back at all. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you prefer the other thing? Well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't lose. Because, uh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Right, so we have a state of awareness, which is vulnerable, and a state of preparedness. Yes? Which is less vulnerable, yes? Because when you're really prepared, you might take avoiding action. Hmm? And let's use the word awareness as a general state of a field of sentient power, not prepared. And we'll call the not prepared state pre-creational sentient power. Before creation. Those of you who believe in God, which I am one, say that infinite power was prior to creation, simply a field of sentient power without preparation for trouble. And then it created by condensing within itself what we call the world, beginning with the primary point. Now, when you're in a state of generalized awareness of your vulnerability, and you haven't defined how you may be attacked, but you feel that you could be attacked, but you haven't defined in how many ways you could be attacked, what is the name of that state? 
Yes. You know the psychological term for that is? Generalized anxiety. Anxiety. You turn the word anxiety into fear when you have a known object that you could avoid or counterattack. Generalized anxiety is when you feel or feeling has not defined the danger but feels there is a danger or a multitude of them. Yeah? Now, when we prepare, what happens to the field of awareness? Don't we have an image that we set up in the field of awareness? Hmm? A tension. When you put a tension in a field of energy, what happens? in the zone of attention. It's precipitated a form. Yeah. Yeah? At the fine level, it's a causative power. At the subtle level, a bit heavier than that, it's an idea. Yeah? At the grossest end, it is a physical body, a condensation of energy. You know how a lightning appears in the sky? Before the lightning comes, there's a preparation for it, isn't it? But until you see the lightning, you're not enlightened. If you've never seen it before, it can be a big shock, can't it? Do you remember the first time you ever saw lightning? When you were a child? I mean, little big stuff, and heard thunder, and you hadn't heard it before? How did you feel about it? Safe? No. Any energy input, which is called a stimulus, any energy input that we have not previously experienced and prepared for can shock us. And when that happens, like letting a rabbinical shock us have a go at you, you are slaughtered. You are cut to pieces by the energy of the stimulus. Now, does it feel nice to be one moment in a sort of semi-dream and the next moment to be rocketed into self-defense with an internal shock so that you shake with fright? Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you been nearly hit by a car? Have you been nearly hit by a falling brick? Now, when you're in a state of shock like that, is this a condition that you would like to stay in? No? In your energy field, that is you, as a zone of energy, is trembling and in danger of disintegrating. Yes? What happens if your reference center, that's your body, is suddenly cut to pieces? What happens to its field of awareness? I was once lucky enough to see a very horrible thing, a five-year-old boy suddenly ran off the pavement in front of a big roller. And the boy was flattened like that with the roller before the man could stop it. You know those things are, they're very heavy, and they don't break suddenly, do they? And this little boy was suddenly flat. And when he rolled away, that was trembling, fresh on the road. 
depressed, he was obviously undead. He was trembling, and I watched it with tremendous interest because it was trying to gather itself together. Obviously, it was in such a mess that it would be difficult, but not impossible, because energy is all there is, and matter is only energy. So, if it had been a little more practice, it might have gathered itself together. Unfortunately, we couldn't get the rest of the experiment completed because a butcher from a shop immediately opposite where the accident occurred rushed out with a bucket of sawdust through the sawdust onto the trembling place and shoveled it into a bucket. That would have been even more difficult to assemble the child with the sawdust, wouldn't it? And that was a remarkable shocking thing to watch, wouldn't it? And all the people that saw it were screaming and crying. The only cool person there, externally, that I saw was the butcher. He had extraordinary calm. And he did the one thing needful. I'm sure everyone preferred that he shoveled it up and put it in a bucket. At least he had a kind of coherence. How many would you like to take your shower home? If you put a hose pipe on it and swirled it down the drain, I'm sure people would have liked that less. At least you could bury this thing with the bucket, couldn't you? And you'd know where it was. And you could put a little stone on it and go and cry every weekend over it. If you wish, it had a location. Yes, a location. And that locus word means quite simply locked up in a zone. Your physical body is your locus of reference for your field of sentient power. Now, in such cases, the thing that shock teaches you is not a good thing to be disintegratable by external forces. You don't like it, do you? Does anybody like the idea that at this moment some idiot far away listened to Reagan's advice a drop above on Parkland. You know, those people are sadistic there. And some of them are not sympathetic to America. So suddenly we all get blown to pieces. Wouldn't there not be a tendency to look for your own bits rather than somebody else's? <laughs> or are you so fond of somebody else you'd rather look for their bits? Right, now, because of very deep thought for the most remote time, certainly as far back as the 6th century BC, we found this very peculiar, interesting, how to be free from threat of disintegration. And the condition is called the philosopher's stone. The stone which, if you find it, makes you able to reintegrate yourself. We don't have many examples of this. We have Lao Tzu saying, I'm going now, and he walks away and nobody ever saw him again. He was 80 at the time and nobody found a dead body. Uh, a story arose that he translated himself into the next world. And we have Enoch and we have Elijah and we have Jesus, all doing something with their bodies, historically, showing the possibility in the mind of the human being of gaining a state where we can resist disintegration. 
Now, when we look at our physical body and touch it like this, what are we looking at and what are we touching? If you press your finger and thumb together, press your finger and thumb together, do you experience resistance? Tell me, is your thumb touching your finger? Is it? Is your thumb and your finger made of protons, neutrons and electrons? The outer circles, are they not electrons? Do they not actually spin and have resistance to each other? So that you can't make two electrons touch? Because the repulsive power is so great that you can't overcome it. So the pressure that you feel when you press your fingers and thumb together is an electronic resistance. It doesn't matter. Think about that very carefully. The resistance you feel is not the resistance of what you call naively matter. It is the resistance of the forces of repulsive electrons. Do you agree? Anybody would like to argue that point? any physicist in the audience. Is matter made of protons, electrons, neutrons, etc.? Are they not forces? Right. Is there any such thing as gross matter not made of force? No. Therefore, what you actually feel is force resisting force. Yes? Now, suppose you identify with your physical body. You go like that. Would it be surprising if I said, what you're feeling is the resistances between the electronic components of the food you have eaten. Those you don't eat at all, what happens to your body? In a meaningful way. In a meaningful way. <laughs> 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 In an empty way. Unless you eat the light you get normally, don't you? So, the Sanskrit word there, anna, means food. Anna, maya, food form, culture. Food form, body. Now, when you eat cabbages, do you look like a cabbage for five minutes? Or do you have a fight with the cabbage and win? Hopefully win. Well, I knew a man, I had a fight with the strawberry on the end of the nose and lost. And for years and years, he had a wonderful collection of strawberries on the nose. And everybody used to laugh about it and call it strawberry nose. And he managed to survive until his wife died. This is very significant. He put up with the strawberry nose, and his wife put up with it. Why? I'm asking you to solve the problem of this man. As a willful being. He let his strawberry nose grow, which he did over the years, slowly. And his wife allowed him to go in. Why did she allow him to go in? It made him unattractive. So keep your strawberry, dear. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and he, because of his love, kept his strawberry. And then his wife died. Now what did he immediately do? You know, stuff and had a lovely operation. He came up very handsome. He said, the surgeon had been a geometrician. 
the interpretation of that is it was like a, a prism. <laughs> it was still strawberry colour, but it was now a prism, wonderful prism. And for some reason, it seemed to deter a lady. Now, why would that be? Well, it didn't look organic. <laughs> it looked definitely dangerous. Now, he had a will to get another wife, didn't he? And without that, he wouldn't have bothered going to this wonderful operation. My aesthetic sense of the time, because I was very fond of drawing noses. I like drawing noses and ears, but noses I love drawing. When I saw this piece of geometry, it wasn't interesting. I could draw it immediately. I was... But it's a really interesting nose. It takes an awful long time to get the bit. Now, we all desire either to integrate or disintegrate. And simultaneously, we can hide one under the other. When we think that life is going well, we desire to integrate and keep what we've got. When it goes badly, we want to get out in some degree. Can you see the sense of that? Now, when you have a fight with the cabbage and you win, what have you done with the cabbage? Well, you've broken it down into constituent energies and appropriated those energies for your purpose with your form. But doesn't that prove you've got a form of your own? A form which is not made of food, the form of your energy field. Yes? Can you feel yourself without touching like this? Just feel. Put a hand in the air and feel it without tension. Are you aware that you have one? Well, there's a temperature difference, but there's also a dynamism, isn't there? Now, are you feeling the food or the energy? You're feeling the energy. The Technical term for that in Hinduism is prana. P-R-A-N-A. Prana is this vital force which you are, which can eat and defeat other life forms and assimilate them. That's prana. Now the first part, prana, means reason, and the second part, na, means sensuousness. So prana is an energy that rationally formulates itself and enjoys itself when it succeeds. So the funny thing about prana is it's you as a mass of energy, not the food you've eaten, but the energy with which you take in the food and break it down and subject it to your will. Now prana yama means control of that. And that's one of the biggest aims in yoga. How to control your sensuous rationalizing energy. Because if you can control that, you could, in principle, resist forces of disintegration. Now, see very clearly that your physicality made of food is not the form of you, but the form of you that makes you you 
Rabbi Yudhar, and you can see the difference formally. Now, supposing I give to you a banana, yes? I give a similar banana, or even half of the same one to your wife, yes? And you both eat them. Do you look like bananas? No. Do you look like your wife, or do you look like you? Does she look like herself, or does she look like you? You convert it to your form, don't you? You actually have this mysterious power, this karma, which is able to utilize the energy forms of other beings, break them down, reduce them, destroy their form and add them to you. And you do this with this field of energy called prana. If we put on the little finger the food, then we put the prana, the energy, on the ring finger. Yeah? And this is tremendously important. Because if all matter is only energy, and an energy that's self-conscious and reflexive can prepare itself for shocks, there's no reason why the energy field should not be invulnerable. And that invulnerability, when attained for each being, for himself, herself, is the philosopher's stone. Now, when you furnish your mind with concepts derived from percepts, which are rationalized sensor, when you do that, what kind of being are you in the process of taking sensor, the simple sensations, and by defining them, converting them to forms called percepts, and then grouping them together to make concepts, what kind of being are you? If you can actually do that. Well, intellect is the means whereby you formulate. But what is the cause of the intellect? Volition. The will to be an intellectual. You're not an intellectual. You're a will, which may be intellectual, or it may discard intellect. Like the, uh, Pleasure pursuers of the world will not follow intellect where it deprives them of pleasure. They're willful. Some people are very willful against intellect. Nietzsche himself didn't think much about it, except as an impedance to the will. Finally, the will, the will to power, and deal it to a mouth. The will is to determine it in all cases. I suppose you say, okay, I'm a field of sentient power. I sense myself, feel, and when I feel, I can tense myself, that's hold, tenere, hold myself, increase my pressures, I can even hurt myself, and I can relax. And I can formulate myself. When I do, I'm making idea structures, percepts and concepts, in my field of awareness. Now, suppose I study a lot of utterly unrelated subject matters, and many of them are erroneous. Erroneous ideas. You know, uh, Omar talks about the two and seventy jarring sects of philosophy. And they say there are so many different opinions about ultimate reality, and they're all so terribly contradictory. And if you hang on to all of them, you become schizophrenic. 
For instance, we take six bases. Basic monistic materialism, the idea, you can write these on a mug and double if you like, two triangles. The triangle that's downwards pointing, on the bottom you write, can I do a tunnel here? Oh, have I? No, I haven't. No. Luckily, I don't have to put it down. Never mind, David. Don't bother. You can do it. Do the uh, double triangle, looking like a six-pointed star. The one that points downwards on the bottom, put MM for monistic materialism. That means that you believe at that point that all reality is matter and there's only one of it. Just one kind of matter. Now, go up that line to another point on the same triangle yes, and put MD, materialistic dualism. Yes? Materialistic dualism says there are two kinds of matter. Some of the Greeks believe this. It's a very gross, coarse matter that we call the gross material world, that one. And there is a subtle, fine matter with very little particles that goes in between the gross ones. And the gross one is your physical body and the fine one is your mental body of ideas. That's what we told that. A materialistic dualism. Go along that line to the other point, the remaining point, put MP. Materialistic pluralism. There isn't only one, and there isn't only two. There are many. Many, many, many little particles. Now, in the 19th century, that was called atomism. It was also called atomism in ancient Greek. Leucippus, Democritus, they believed in primary particles, many of them. Now, are they compatible, those three philosophies? That there is only one matter, that there are two matters, one gross and the other finer, and there are many, many matters. Are they compatible? Are they compatible with each other? No, because when you said types of matter, you've already typed it. You've gone back to your monism. Well, you're back in monism again. You're back in monism if you do that. Yeah, but you've used one term, namely matter, to convey two totally different ideas. Because the thing about the idea as such, you can't knock it like this. Let me give you an example. Well then, if, if you wish, if you wish to have it that way, then surely you would say I have here matter, and I have here not matter. Oh, that's two totally different things. That wouldn't, be, totally that wouldn't be a materialistic dualism, would it? If you said matter and not matter. But if the two are the same essential, they're not. And if they're no, not, No, either two kinds of matter, and you're using the same word matter to signify fundamentally that they are the same, 
Oh, you say matter and not matter, but not matter is not matter. You're back in monism again. Well, that's all right if you want to do that. Now we'll invert this triangle, and the one with the apex at the top, this time we'll put S M, spiritual monism, and then on the corner opposite the dualism, S D, spiritual dualism, and on the other, S P, spiritual pluralism. Now that gives us six philosophies. When you said matter and not matter, you've gone from one triangle to the other. Now, these ideas are incompatible. For one thing, matter always has mass inertia. But spirit doesn't. Spirit is pure initiative. And there is no way of relating pure initiative with mass inertia, if there is such. So we then have a dualism of the two triangles. Yes? Now, through having a variety of contradictory ideas like that, do you know what hysterically happened? Men murdered each other physically, put each other to death in the name of an idea. The most famous one at the time of Constantine was this fight with the Christians about whether Christ's body was like God or identical with God. And for that they murdered each other. And when it can come to the point where people kill each other for the sake of an idea, have the ideas better be very carefully examined. Is it not true that Reagan says uh, that the Russians are wicked atheists and that the Americans are enlightened, all-compassionate Christians? Yes? Is that not a difference of idea? And where ideas differ in that way, is there not going to be a fight? Will there not be a war and next time nerve gas and nuclear weapon? And half the population of the earth will be eliminated on the grounds of a difference of idea. Meanwhile, there are a few people going about marching in protest, saying, why can't we be nice to each other? They have an idea that it's possible to live harmoniously if you have the idea of living harmoniously. But when it comes to one fellow pinching another fellow's girlfriend in the march, does it still hold? I know a fellow went off to Stonehenge to do a little demonstration two years ago. And while he was there protesting with his girl, another protester removed his girl and married her. And he hasn't forgiven him yet. Now that's spoiling the harmony of the march, isn't it? It means that while you're going on, you should kick outside there, giving out men. And that produces disruption, and that produces disintegration. Now, in order to get a harmonious, disintegration-resistant body of ideas, you must have some idea that embraces all other ideas. Now, some philosophers thought they could attain this by what they call eclecticism. That is, take the best ideas out of every religion and then believe them all. You're then eclectic. You collect all the best ideas from all the different religions and put them together. And the best idea in Buddhism is that there is no God. 
The best idea in Judaism, there is a God. The best idea in Islam, there is a God, and His will is absolute, and you're obeying it, whether you like it or not, as it says in the book. The best idea in Christianity is that a man willfully had himself crucified, dead, buried, and rose again and mysteriously vanished into heaven. Now, they're all very good ideas. Can you put them together in one magnificent super-religion? You may be, I don't know. Can you? Does it sound easy? No? Loud says uh, politics are simple. For the people to get them, empty their minds and fill their bellies and you'll have no trouble in ruling. That's a good idea, isn't it? How do you empty people's minds? I mean, can you? What do you do? Fill their bellies. How do you do that? Get Mr. Gelder off on the job? The world is not quite as simple as people would like it to be. The world is energy, and all the energies are very, very busy fighting each other for their own survival. Now, for every living being, there is a possibility of attaining in their own being a state of total power to resist disintegration. And when it is attained, that being is himself or herself the philosopher's stone. That stone simply means the power through perfect self-knowledge to resist integration and disintegration and decide what you shall integrate and what you shall not. You don't want to integrate wrong ideas, do you? You don't want to disintegrate right ideas. And your ability to do that. Let's make a word. A-Y-N. And that happens to be a Hebrew word, meaning absolute observer, also supreme negation of ignorance. Latin. You know, in Old English, ayin means the eye. It's also a plural form for eye, the observer. A means absolute, Y means yes, and N means no. The absolute can affirm or negate itself. That is, you can decide, actively, A for activity, whether you will say yes to doing something, or no to doing it. Now, every observer, signified by this word ayin, A-Y-N, has this power of agreeing or dis- disagreeing with anything whatever in his field of awareness. Now, supposing you say that integration is worth having, and it might be a good idea to develop an immortal body of ideas. And never mind your food body, that is your physicality. But integrate your ideas in such a way that if somebody came and steamrolled your physical body, they would not dissemble your idea body. Now in the Bible it says, anybody who comprehends this shall not be hurt of the second death. Now the first death is the death of your physical body. But the second death is the death or disintegration of your body of ideas which has served you as a reference center during life. Now, if your second body, the body of ideas, 
is perfectly integrated, any part of it signifies all the others because they're all mutually defining. Can we see that that's a tremendous aim to make our ideas so self-consistent with each other that if we know one, we know them all. And the yogi answer to that one is the word Purna. P-U-R-N-A. You've already done Prana. And this Purna is related to it. The now means your sensuousness. That means your capacity for sensing. And the poor means your structuralizing power. Poor is an introvert of city. And the city is a structure. And the purpose of making a city was to stop energies disintegrating. Let's take an example from history. Today, there's a state called Israel. Israel. It means really affirmation and rulership of God. The people that became Israel, like that, are right in the middle of another people, the Arabs, aren't they? And the funny thing about Arabs, some translated arid, which it really means refusal of external rulership. You're not going to be dominated from outside. Did that not make a nomadic people continuously at war with the various tribes in the Arabian desert? Every time a man with a few sheep met a man with a few sheep, he had a war. Who's going to eat the pasture? Your sheep or mine? Abraham says to Lot, your sheep herders and my sheep herders have been quarreling. Now a man and his friend must part. Because the head is equivalent. Now imagine that the one that refused to coordinate into a big government with rules, we call it Arab. The Arab part means master. We're not having a master. So a nomadic people wandering in the desert refuse an overall control. Now obviously the logical opposite to this is that some people see the disadvantage of this perpetual quarrel which is very similar to clan warfare in Scotland, or the warfare in the German states prior to the creation of the German Empire. Some of them thought, wouldn't it be a good idea if we deliberately subordinated ourselves to a king? The Jews said, let's have a king, like other nations, and they got Saul. These are two opposite ideas. Don't have anybody to tell you what to do, that's Arabic and do have something to tell you what to do, because it's disadvantageous not to have. In this country, as a friend of mine said a few weeks ago, following a ridiculous program on the TV, insulting with images, fitting images, the royal family, although a left-wing sympathizer, he said it's wrong to attack the royal family because it is a reference and a unifying agent in the minds of people. Without it, you substitute for it what? A dictator? Or a group who don't agree? Now, unity helps towards efficiency in one sense. But the mass inertia of a bureaucracy impedes itself. So you always have a pair of opposites. So the triangle down point in the material which is inertia, is that bureaucracy, and the one pointing upward, spirit, initiative. That one 
the one pointing up and the one pointing down, they actually disagree and fight. Now we have to build this philosopher's stone, which is our own being. Remember, we are a zone of energy. And the energy feels itself. It is sentient energy. And because of that, it can integrate itself. And it can even take a pair of opposites, like initiative and inertia, and hold them together. Now, a concrete example. When you first learn to drive a car, does the car obey you very easily? Or does it prefer walls and lampposts? <laughs> it seems like a will of its own. But then you learn there's a gear lever, there's a clutch, and there's a brake, and there's a steering wheel. And gradually, by repetition, observe repetition, you condition your nervous system. And then one day, suddenly, you find you're not running into walls, you're going down the road. To your amazement, you can look out of the window without fear. You can even spare the time to insult another driver for on driving. <laughs> Can't you? So it is possible to get an inertia and deliberately set it up so it will do the remembering for you and at the same time retain your initiative to determine, if you will, a new direction. Like Concord was a new direction in airplane speed. Boom. And some old diehards, some Luddites and so on, in the old days, every new invention, they smashed it on principle. They're not used to it. Therefore, it's wrong. The mass inertia in a person might destroy their initiative, or the initiative might take to pieces the inertia. Unnecessary. Now, this philosopher's stone is the human being in and for himself able to resist all disintegration and to control his two enemies, inertia and initiative. Inertia is an enemy if you don't know you've got it. Initiative is one if it's gone with inertia. We don't want to be changed for the sake of change every second, you know. So we have to get this wonderful idea. It is actually possible to build a body of ideas so that if somebody comes along and kills the physical body, they have not killed the zone of energy with its system of ideas there, which is so well integrated that they survive death. And not only do they survive death, they can actually deliberately go and find another body, or build one. A person in full integration, in Hindu philosophy, it's very clear there. A person with good integration, if he dies, they have old age, or political necessity like gambling, he could immediately reincarnate in a baby that's just in the moment of being conceived. He's so gathered together, they uh, I want to be born again now. And this fellow over there with it, looking at the girl, those two will do. I'll select those for my parents. Most people don't know that they choose their own parents, do they? They like to blame the parents for their rotten behavior. Look upon this as an energy problem. There is no matter other than modalities of energy. And the energy is sentient and self-determined, absolutely. But it has two possibilities. Initiative, change it. Inertia, maintain it. And it can intelligently decide 
winced anew at any given moment. The nice word Kasama, that's K-S-A-N-A. It means now, but it means the moment of release of an energy into action. And if you know that initiative contains things, and inertia maintains things, you can actually decide to keep an idea or get rid of it, at will. Now, a lot of people don't believe in life after death, do they? They don't think it's worth it anyway. They're already bored to death here. Without nothing in another world. It's true, a lot of people are bored. You can't actually be bored unless you're not interested. If you're really interested, you can't be bored. If you're interested in the hairs on the back leg of a flea, that would be enough to keep you going. Interest is energy convergence. Interest is life dedicating itself to perpetuation. Now, how do we like this idea? We have, from the very beginning of our own being, been the cause of our own existence. That's a terrible thing to say. And we are now where we are because of our prior choices. We can't blame anybody else. We can't say, oh, so-and-so gave me bad advice. Because we couldn't refuse it. And when we ask other people for advice generally, it's an attempt to pass the buck in case it goes wrong. Now, allowing that we are self-generated in the first place, you then have that the field of sentient power is pure spirit, which is initiative, but it can set up a system of inertias which are formal, and the formal inertic system is called a body. And you can have a body of ideas made permanent, so that if your physical body is disintegrated by a crash, you do not suffer the disintegration of your ideas. You're there, and you say, well, that body's gone, I think I'll get me another body. You might actually take a nearby person who's not doing much use anyway and say, I'll use that body for the time. And suddenly a man that's been very dull-witted starts talking and behaving like a genius. It was the integrated person with the philosopher's stone type body that took it over. Now you might think that's a bit fairy tale, but it isn't. Because in fact people are continuously taking each other over by giving each other ideas. When an idea embodies in a person, and then that body is the vehicle of the idea. And the idea has determined the behavior of the body. And the body is nothing but a means of expression of the idea. So that with an idiot like Hitler, or a Mussolini, or Napoleon in his degenerative condition, you get an idea, and the idea runs away with it. The idea is a living being, and the body is the inertia aspect attached to it. Now, how are we going to get hold of ourselves in such a way that we build our being into a philosopher's stone by our own efforts? And the answer is, terrible answer this one, tell yourself only the truth. 
In other words, do not allow self-deception. The body of total resistance to disintegration is the body of truth, where truth means formal, absolute self-consistency. Now, as soon as you tell yourself a lie, you have started to disintegrate. And you're not a philosopher's stone. But if you tell yourself the truth, and find another truth that fits with it, you are building your philosopher's stone. Now it says about this, this philosopher's stone is a rock on which the temple of God is built. Temple means time frame. In time, with your experiences, you can build a body that resists absolutely disintegration, but only by telling yourself the truth about you and your motives. Consciousness, volition. Conscious motive. Posits the concept. Develops from it mentation. Experiences pleasure pain and builds a body out of those inner tensions, intentions. Right, this is a possibility. How do we feel about this? From now forth I'm going to tell myself the truth about me internally. What you will find is that you are Purana. You are P-U-R, a structuralizing power, N-A, a sensuous enjoying power. And what you are enjoying is your own structure made by you to your specification. Now supposing we say the food body, the energy body, the mental body, the conceptual body, the bliss body, and the will. You know that bliss is when you will do something, you're willing it, you're glad you're willing it, and when you've done it, you're glad that you willed it, that's bliss. When everything you do coincides exactly with your will to do it, that's bliss. That's Ananda Mahakusha. A bliss form body. Where your will, simply will, to do something with full, clear consciousness, and now we've shifted awareness into consciousness. Awareness is general sense of vulnerability. Consciousness is consciousness. With analysis of the I, O U S being, and E W S essence. The essence of being analytically perfected and held together. That's consciousness. As opposed to simple awareness. What do we have then? If we can afford to face the pain, and that is painful, of telling oneself the inner truth about oneself and one's own motives, so that you don't have any dark patches that you're ashamed of, you are building that body, the philosopher's stone, on the rock of absolutely consistent truth. Rock, our English word, Ruch, the Arabic, and the chess fellow have the same name. Ruch, in the Hebrew, it's all the same word. It means discriminate, ah, khet, hierarchical power. When you discriminate the hierarchical powers of your own being truthfully, with no vacillation, with no avoidance, 
you tell yourself the truth about your structures and what you made of yourself deliberately in order to be the kind of being and you do this with thorough self-knowledge you must necessarily become a zone of power sentient able to resist all disintegration and reassemble yourself. You know that power of reassembly is there because all the cells in your body all day long are breaking down and dying and being repaired, aren't they? There is a breaking down process and there is a repair process. Now, if we want the repair process, we simply will to continue to exist. If we get fed up or too bored, we will to not exist. And we stop structuralizing. And that's from poor into now. And the now, the senses will just go away like a snake into the infinite. In the poor, we structure. In the now, we go away. How are we in this test? Can we dare to stand in front of the mirror of the mind? Look in your mind. The mind is a mirror. And tell yourself the truth about your own motives. And if you can, and you can bear it, and structuralize yourself volitionally in full consciousness, your body becomes, never mind your food body, that's going to be lost anyway, your body of ideas becomes utterly invulnerable. And you are then the mysterious philosopher's stone that you have been seeking. And you can live in any world and reappear at any time in history in any universe. Deliberately. So you will not be hurt of the second death. Second death is integration of erroneous ideas. You will survive in all universes under all conditions. How do you like the idea? Uh, as a go. How do you like the idea of having to tell you truth? Your truth to you, about you, to get it. Is that as comforting? Can you feel the wigglers, the wigglers, the avoiders? They're there. Because every time you had sensuality, that's now, and poor, structure is trying to control it and is trying to wriggle out. Shall we just consider that a little? Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications for future episodes.